This is Colossians 3, verses 1 through 11. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips." Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Go ahead and have a seat. Well, this morning, I want to let you in on a conversation I will never forget. Between my wife and I, 15 years ago, we were living in Spain, three little kids. The kids are in bed. I'm sitting in the chair in our living room reading. Jenny's on the sofa on our laptop. And she says, well, I'm looking into flights home. This isn't working for our family. So the kids and I are going to go. We can live with my parents, and you can come join us when you're ready. Now, you know in your life there's a few pivotal conversations that you look back on and go, from this point forward, my life was one way and then turned a different way. I wish I could say this was one of those conversations. But the reality was it took a lot more before I got the point. We were almost a year into living in Spain, doing ministry there, three little kids in school, and for obvious reasons, this whole mission and this whole vocation wasn't working for our family. Jenny knew it, our family back in the States knew it, but I was unwilling to give up this dream and to face reality. So there we were. We were alone in Spain. Our team hadn't arrived. School wasn't working for my son. My wife is looking for flights home for our family, but without me. My health was even suffering. My physical body was telling me this is not working. Yet I was relentlessly bent on seeing it through. So the question is, why was that? What was it in me that was driving me? I mean, why did I go to serve God and see human flourishing through myself and through my family, yet end in intense anxiety, frustration, and disunity with my wife. And I just wonder this morning, have you ever experienced that where you've leaned so hard into something that you thought was good, maybe even you thought it was God, and yet in the middle of it, you were experiencing turmoil in your inner person and I had to really figure out what was it in me why was I doing this somehow my my good intentions of wanting to be on Jesus 
saving mission to the world had gotten so twisted. There were other motives in there, what in this series we're calling false self. This part of me that was trying to find affirmation, acceptance, and love, but apart from God. There were these two forces at work within me. What is that? We believe from the scriptures that this is called our flesh, our sinful nature, or what we're calling our false self. It's this operating system that is running deep in our minds behind everything that we do. It's this way that we try to define our worth, our ability to be loved, or accepted based on what we do. This is our false self. And in that moment in Spain, in that period of my life, I was on a collision course with my false self. And it was not going to be pretty. But I'll come back to that story later. Right now we're in a series called The True Self and the false self, filled with all the fullness of God. And our big idea in this series is that in order to understand and experience God's love, first, you have to understand who God is and who we are. We have to know God and know ourselves. Last week, Bethany taught so well about knowing God, and this week we're gonna talk a little bit about knowing yourself. Because we wanna be honest about who we are. So I loved about that story we just heard. There was honesty, the frustration, the joy, the pain, the answered prayer, community stepping in. It's amazing. And we want to be those kinds of people that are honest about who we actually are because we serve a God of truth. And we want to walk in the light. We want to walk in God's truth because I think it's actually only in that space of being completely honest about who we are can we experience the depth of God's love. So let's look at our text for today. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 11. We're back in Colossians. Bethany started us here last week. And remember, Paul is writing to a group of churches in a city in the first century. And what's happening in their culture is actually similar in some ways to ours. There's these two poles. On one hand, there's paganism where it's very normal in that secular moment with the pantheon, pantheon of Greek gods to worship all kinds of different gods, even through temple prostitution, through drunkenness and orgies and all of that. And then on the other hand, you have the strict religious practices of Judaism. And for the church in Colossae, they're trying to figure out where do we land between these strong poles? Not a lot different than our city where you have extreme secularism and anything goes. And on the other hand, as followers of Jesus, we can fall into something that we call religion devoid of God. So we, standing in this moment, are a lot like the church in Colossae. So Paul is speaking to that, and we get to listen into his conversation to them as he's instructing who is Christ and how do you live in their cultural moment, which I think translates to ours. So we see Paul begins with this idea of union with Christ, this massive theological concept that is unbelievably mysterious and beautiful. He says that when Christ died, if you're a follower of Jesus here today, when Christ died, you died with him. When Christ was raised, you were also raised. 
And when Christ returns one day in his future glory, you will return with him. In other words, you are united in everything that Christ has done through faith. Interesting, if you think about it, some of it relates to our past. It happened in the past. When Christ died, past tense, you died. When Christ was raised, past tense, you were raised. Right now, the scripture says, you are hidden in Christ. You are wrapped up in Christ right now. And in the future, you will be revealed with him. Paul is saying that this part of you, the the sinful nature, the flesh, that died. And you've been raised new. And you can think of all that. Paul says this almost in every letter. He says things like, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live in this moment. It's Christ living through me. Or he says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. New has come. Have you heard him say these things before? Paul is obsessed with this idea. And he's trying to live into this reality of dying with Christ but being raised and alive with Christ right now. And when we do baptism right here, some of you in this past year have entered the waters of baptism. That is the story we're telling. We're celebrating as we put people under the water and then quickly bring them up. We're reminding them your old self is dead and gone. And when you come up out of the water, you're symbolizing new life in Christ. This is the truest thing about you this morning, my friend. You have been forever united with Christ. Your true identity is wrapped up in, covered in, and hidden in Christ. So, Paul says, in light of our union with Christ, there's a few ways to respond. First, set your mind and your heart in heaven where Christ is. So first, Paul addresses our mindset. We have to think right to live right. And if we're honest, so much of our battle as followers of Jesus today in this city, in the midst of secularism, is we're just fighting to keep Jesus' mental maps of reality. We're constantly being told by the world in every single direction how to think. And we have to have our minds renewed to think correctly, right? Don't forget, the main strategy of the enemy against you has to do with your thoughts. The devil is called the father of lies. When he speaks his native language, it is lying. Our good friend John Mark Comer says it this way. Jesus sees our primary war against the devil as a fight to believe truth over lies. When you believe the truth, the way Jesus created life to be, it it leads you to human integration to flourishing, to blessing, to shalom and happiness. But when we're deceived in our thinking, it actually leads somewhere else. If we don't think right, it leads to disintegration in our humanity, to wrong living, to difficulty, to pain. And Jesus came to offer life, and this life is truth about how life actually is. His mental maps, The way of thinking actually set us free to enjoy life. Do you believe that here today? So Paul is saying, don't be deceived by earthly stories about who you are, about what it means to be human, but instead adjust your mindset heavenly to Christ. Renew your thinking with his thoughts about reality. You are united with Christ, so focus on Christ. Look where he is seated. Let heaven define your thoughts, not earth. View everything 
through this lens, Paul is saying. Isn't it interesting that as humans, stories define our reality. We tell stories to explain why we're here, what it means to be human, and where we're going. And I would tell you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the greatest and truest story ever. Therefore, it is our reality. You are united with Christ. You are seated in heaven. So, set your mind there. Think according to heaven because that's where your true self actually is. So the first response to our unity with Christ is to think right, which leads to the second response that Paul gives us, which is to live right. He says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, your old humanity, your false self, and then he lists what that looks like. And it's a long list. Things like immorality, lust, greed, all of that. Now check this out. This is not just Paul giving you a list like another version of the Ten Commandments. Here's a, a list of prohibitions, all the things to avoid. No, this list of behaviors that Paul gives us is actually the symptoms of the root problem in our heart. If the root of the tree is infected and bad, then so will the fruit be, right? These are symptoms of the false self. So when we're experiencing these things, we're experiencing the temptation toward lust or greed or whatever, we have to trace that all the way back to the root and ask, what is the core belief I have about God in this moment or myself in this moment that is causing me to think this way? These behaviors are indicators that my false self is running the show. I'm trying to achieve peace, or love, but without God when I'm acting this way. So if that is what it looks like in the false self, a couple of verses later, we'll put this on the screen, verses 12 through 14. Here's what it looks like when we're operating out of the true self. Therefore, Paul continues, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. What kind of world do you want to live in? The previous one or this one? Bear with one another. This is beautiful. This is what our city wants. Forgive one another. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. This is what it looks like for us to live as our true self. And this is not about project self. This is not about hacking your life with the best yoga routine and the best bulletproof coffee and you know, the best therapist. This is about living the kind of human that Christ says that you already are in him. This is how you are to show up to the world. In your community, in your office, and in this city. And guys, if we slow down and just think about it for a minute, this is exactly what the city of Portland needs. It needs you living into your true self, rooted in Christ. So we just have to pause and ask, are you showing up to your life as this kind of person? Not the fake nice, not the coffee shop nice of, how are you today? Good, how are you? What are you going to do today? I don't know, something meaningless. Me too. All right, have a great day. You know, <laughs> not the Portland fake nice, not the coffee shop encounter, but real love. This is what our city needs. Okay, so that's all clear. Many of you have heard that before. You've read the New Testament. You've heard these sermons. Awesome. But here's the question. 
Why is my experience of living this out so hard? Why do I have such mixed motives? Even when I'm trying to do something right to serve God and promote human flourishing, I'm aware of these deeper desires in me to make myself look good, to be the best at it, to be approved by you or others. Can anybody relate to that? Why is that? If my false self is dead and buried with Christ, then why is it so strong within me? And the Apostle Paul himself wrestles with this when he says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. Have you ever felt that? I think the answer behind this is this reality of the kingdom of God being already, but not yet. When Jesus arrived on earth, he announced in word and in deed, the kingdom of God is here. And what he meant by that is the presence and access to all that God is, is here, right in my presence. Not in the temple for the priest once a year, not in the Holy of Holies, right here with the leper, with the tax collector, with the Gentile. And what Jesus showed was he said, hey, the kingdom of God is here. And not only am I going to tell you that, I'm going to show you. I'm going to demonstrate it with signs and wonders. So when the kingdom of God is there, not only does it sound good, it actually is good. Those that are sick are healed. Those that are dead are raised to life. It's amazing. Those that are wrapped up in societal change are freed to be their true selves. But here's the thing. Even in the ministry of Jesus, there was still disease, there was still pain, and there was still death. So there's this weird tension that theologians have called the already but not yet nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here, and we see it in little glimpses and little pockets and little rumors, but it's not here fully, right? We're in this time between times. There's a gap. We see the kingdom of God at work among us. Isn't that right, Bridgetown family? We see stories like Ali told today. We see baptisms. We see life change. We see renewal and life in this season in our Bridgetown family. And it is amazing, and I love it. And we all still have unanswered prayers. This is true of creation, but this is also true of you. We are in Christ now. The old self is dead, but we're struggling to bring this reality fully into our day-to-day -day lives. The Spirit is working this through. In other words, we are not there yet. So I need you to turn to your neighbor real quick and say, neighbor, go ahead. Neighbor, you are not there yet. Do you know what I'm saying? All the married people are saying, we do know. <laughs> All the people people are saying, we do know. We are in the gap. We are not there yet. We are holy and blameless in Christ, and we're not all the way there to living that fully in our day-to-day. -day. We're on a journey, a progressive journey of sanctification, meaning we're on an up and down, hopefully like the stock market is going up, but if there's, you know, to this place of Christ-likeness. And in that snapshot I shared at the beginning of where I was at 15 years ago with my wife in Spain, I was a devoted follower of Jesus. I was all in for Jesus' mission to the nations. That's why we were there. But I still had 
the false self motivating me, driving me in these powerful ways, and I still do today. You know, the reality of this idea of being in Christ is like a marriage. It's so much fun seeing people come together and be married. I have the privilege of uh, performing many of these wedding ceremonies. And when husband and wife say I do, they become full-on husband and wife in that moment. However, we all know that you have a lifetime of living into that reality. Sure, I declare it, and they exchange rings, and there's a, there's a celebration. They are now husband and wife. But that reality is going to take a lot of... <laughs> Why are we all laughing at that? There's a shared understanding in the room, isn't there? Are they living into it fully? No. It takes a lifetime to live into that identity. And the same is true with you and I. We are on a journey of Christ-likeness. But the good news is God will never ask you to do something that he doesn't give you the power to do. Think about that for a minute. God is never going to ask you to live into love, forgiveness, unity in the spirit without the power to do so. This is possible. But the question is, how? How do I close this gap between the strong desires of the false self and the true desires of my true self in Christ. How do we bring that together and actually live in integrity? And I think the answer is the theme of today, discovering our true selves in God. Now, isn't it interesting that in all of creation, living out the true identity of an object is only a challenge for humans? I mean, think about that. Rocks, flowers, sea lions, even electrons and protons and neutrons all glorify God by being what they were made to be. But humans were meaning makers, storytellers, identity creators. So it's actually difficult for us to live into our true selves, who we were truly created to be. The false self picks up all these ways of being that are not authentic to who God created us to be, who we truly are in Christ, we try to create these ways to be loved, to be accepted, to be at peace through these false identities apart from life with God. And listen, we all know we're constant, there's an economy of identity. We're constantly being sold through marketing and social media ways to be, ways to create meaning. Wear this, drive this. Do this vocation, have these things, and then you could be loved. Then you could be at peace. But these manufactured ideas leave us so disappointed. That's, it's, it's like that insanity. It's like planned obsolescence. You buy this thing, and then all of a sudden you don't need it, and you need the next thing. That's why there's this huge billion-dollar economy around selling identity. But the reality is, Gavin had this beautiful insight, God is infinite and therefore has made us all as unique individuals. You're a masterpiece of an infinite artist. And the most honoring thing to God that you could ever do would be to discover and live out who he made you to be. To move past yourself into your divine design to be the unique man or woman that he created you. This is your mission, and not only that, this is what we will all answer to God someday regarding. 
there's this rabbinic tale of Rabbi Zuzia. How's that for a name? And Rabbi Zuzia had all these followers and one day he came to them, his eyes were red from crying, his face was pale like he had just had the fright of his life and, they, and his followers look at him and they're like, what happened to you? And he says, I just learned the one question God will ask of me upon my death at judgment. And his followers were like, well, you're so wise, Zeusia. You're so humble. You're so devoted to God. How could you be so afraid of facing God? What's the question that you have to answer to him? And Zeusia said, I have learned that God will ask me not why weren't you like Moses, leading your people out of slavery, or not like Joshua, leading your people into the promised land. God will say to me, Zeusia, there was only one thing that no power of heaven or earth could have prevented you from becoming. Why were you not Zeusia? And the same is true for each and every one of us. I will not be accountable to God for why I was not like Bethany or JT or Gavin. I will be accountable to God for failing to be me failing to live into the true identity that God has given me. Can you relate to that? Do you feel that burden? There's something inside us. You were made uniquely by God in a specific way that's unique just to you. And when you live in step with that, there's a peace, there's a power, there's a beauty to it. But if we're honest, it's hard to do. There's this tension Within us. So how do we discover the true self and live into it? Three things, if you're taking notes, write these down. If you're not, write these down. Three things that I think are very helpful. Number one, we need to listen to ourselves, excuse me, listen to our lives, listen to others, and listen to God. A quick word on each. First, listen to your life. What are you good at? How are you wired? What's your unique personality type, family of origin, the story or stories of how God has uniquely healed you? We have to pay attention to the way God has made us, to our story, and honor it. I hate to say it, but you actually cannot be whatever you want. But you can be who God made you. We need to undo some serious parenting from the 1980s. Maybe that was just me. You can't be whatever you want, but you can be who God made you to be. And where is that unique space where you feel God's pleasure working through you and others appreciate it? Pay attention to what you are doing and where people are flourishing as a result of it. Myself, 15 years ago, trying to go to Spain to be a super apostle, to lead a cross-cultural team, to start a church planning, planning movement, it wasn't the right fit. My family was not flourishing. I was not flourishing. And as much as I wanted to be that person, it didn't work. And I finally got the message. We returned home to the States. I finally was facing reality. My wife and I were in couples counseling, shocker. And I remember this moment of head in my hands, this dream and this thing that I had raised this money for, I told people I was gonna go do that I really thought was the right thing for me, had totally failed. I'm like 31 or 32 at this time and I'm holding my head in my hands and I'm talking to the counselor about the pain, 
processing this death and I look over at my wife and she had the biggest smile on her face. She was beaming. Why was Jenny so happy? Because her husband was finally living in reality. Let me just tell you something. It's not fun to be married to somebody that doesn't live in reality. Some of you guys are like, I know. The whole missionary to Spain thing wasn't me. It wasn't working, and I was the last one to admit it. It was not what I was made to do. It wasn't the way I was wired. It didn't fit with my life, my limitations, and my marriage, and my kids. And so listen, you have to pay attention to who you actually are. You have to listen to your life. And secondly, you have to listen to others. What do others say that you're good at? Where are people responding to you and there's human flourishing and there's good results? You know, in my mid-20s out of uh, Bible college, I got married and I started serving at a church, doing skate church and overseeing a Sunday night gathering and I was on my way to Spain and nothing could stop me. And one night, Sunday night after leading ministry, much like I do today, I came down off the stage and I encountered a godly Saint Bill Wex. Came from a family of uh, founders of Bible college, leaders of churches, professors of Bible college, uh, missionaries. I mean, this guy is a deep, deep godly man from a godly legacy. He's seen it all. He's probably approaching 80 at the time. And I came down off the stage and he said to me, you know, Gerald, I've been watching you and you really are a pastor. You should think about that. And in my heart, all I was thinking is, I'm not a pastor, I'm a missionary. Get behind me, Satan. You know? <laughs> I didn't say that. But I thought that, but guess what? He was right. I should have listened to him and listened to my wife. So you have to listen to others and get feedback. What are you good at? Where are the situations maybe in your community that you can try leading some things in volunteer service, in your work? Try things and get feedback on them because we have to listen to others. That helps us discover what we were made to do and who we are. And then finally, we need to listen to God. We cannot create our identity. We have to receive it from our creator. Listen, even Jesus, after his baptism, had to hear his true identity from heaven rather than figure it out for himself. Think about that. Matthew chapter four, the baptism of Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this beautiful Trinitarian moment. And Jesus needed to hear from his Father, you are my Son, whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. Friends, if Jesus needed to hear that from his Father, how much more do we? We need to hear from God who he designed us to be. And this is why inner healing prayer, prophetic prayer, listening prayer, all of that is so important. That is deeply ingrained into all that we do in our communities. Hopefully you're doing that. You know, the hot seat, someone sits in the middle and everybody prays and listens and said stuff. And a bunch of that stuff doesn't land, but sometimes one of those words do and they change a destiny. When we go on our admissions trips to the Via down in Nicaragua, some of you will go down there. Seth goes every single summer because it's amazing. And, the, and it was so funny. I took my whole family on one of those trips with many of you down to the Via to serve um, the girls there. And as we got there, I was like, okay, we're going to be serving. We're going to be encouraging these people. But really, every, the power was every night, 
We had somebody sit in the middle and we prayed and prophesied for them. And we saw as we listened and prayed for people, the shackles of false identity fall off, healing take place, and then people received true identity from God and walked out of their change. And it was like awesome serving during the day. It was amazing. I hope to go back. But then the fun part was like, what's going to happen tonight? And so that's why we do encounter and prayer ministry. That's why we do prophecy and prayer because these words listening to God are absolutely life-changing you know just a few weeks ago my wife Jenny came to pray someone for someone down here and she put her hands on the shoulder she's listening and then she heard shepherd and she was like oh I wonder if that's like his last name for this young man shepherd or something she forgot that shepherd is synonymous with pastor and the bible uses that word a lot but anyways uh <laughs> So she puts her hand on the shoulder and she's like, hey, I'm hearing the word shepherd. Does that mean anything to you? And she was thinking like, oh, maybe it's the name of, you know, somebody he knows, their last name, whatever. And he turns around, tears in his eyes and says, I was asking God to reveal identity. And she goes, shepherd. And he's like, yes, (laughs) shepherd. And listen, all of that is great, those unique identities, but there's a broader one. And the most important part about your identity that the father is constantly speaking over you is that you are deeply loved. This is the key to our identity. It's the foundation, it's the starting point. Psychologist and author David Benner says it like this. In order for our knowing of God's love to be transformational, it must be the basis of our identity. Our identity is who we experience ourselves to be, the I each one of us carries within, and identity grounded in God would mean when we think of who we are, The first thing that would come to mind is our status as someone deeply loved by God. Friends, is this the first thing you think about when you think about your identity? Deeply loved by God. This is the goal of everything. Brennan Manning, the author and speaker, was on a silent retreat for 30 days. Don't get hung up on that. But while he was on the silent retreat, the director there who he'd meet with every morning said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to meditate on one phrase. From Song of Solomon, here it is. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. I want you to meditate on that for the next 30 days. And he did until it became his identity. The beloved's, his desire is for me. And then he writes a few years ago and says, I've been doing this practice now for 30 years. Now Jesus knows the experience of the father And he models what is it like to live in this reality of God's love. And what's more is he says that this same experience is available to you right now. In John 17, 23, one of my favorite verses, Jesus says a bunch of amazing stuff. And then he says, then the world will know that you sent me, Father, and have loved them even as you loved me. So think about that. God the Father in the Trinitarian community of love has eternally loved the Son. In theology, we say that the Father is the source of love. And all of his love for eternity has been focused on the Son, Jesus Christ. And now Jesus is saying, in the same way that the Father loves the Son, he loves you. That's unbelievably good. And we have to accept this love as we truly are. You can't ignore the parts of you. You can't just bring your good religious self. 
the self that didn't mess up. But we have to be honest right where we are today. The false self tries to convince us that we only deserve that love when we're good. But the reality is you are loved like that no matter what you've done. Even if you promise yourself that you wouldn't do it again, you wouldn't look at porn again, you wouldn't drink too much again, you wouldn't lie at work again, you wouldn't get angry and yelled again. Jesus wants to love you as you are right now, the real you, not the fake self that we prop up for others' approval. He sees right through that. This is how we know the love of God. We open ourselves up to him when we don't have it all together. Remember, Jesus came for the sick, not the well. Somehow, once you get into the kingdom, you forget that. And you think you have to have your act together for him to love you. But listen, Jesus is a good doctor. And like a good doctor, he's attracted to our sin because he can heal it. I mean, think about that. Imagine a doctor who's trained her whole life to cure infectious disease. Her dreams to go to a third world country and to bring care there. And she finally does. She's trained for it. This is her joy to go bring healing. But when she goes, the villagers actually hide from her. They pretend that they don't need her. How sad would that be for her? Her mission is to bring healing. And listen, friends, so is the mission of Jesus. It doesn't matter if it's the first day that you meet Jesus or 20 years in. So why do we hide from God? Remember Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well? It's this beautiful story. Jesus goes in the middle of the day by himself. He ditches the disciples. They're like, where'd he go? He's like, go get some food. He goes to this, this well, and it's the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day. And culturally and societally, that would be the time when people who didn't want to be around the crowd, didn't want to associate with the normal women in the culture, would go by themselves the hottest part of the day. So Jesus goes there and he meets this woman and while he's in this conversation with her, he's pressing deep to get to the core, the true self of who she is. First, they highlight that she's a Samaritan, he's a Jew. That's not a normal relationship. The Jews call the Samaritans half-breeds and dogs. And I don't know about you, but dog is a derogatory term in every culture and time. Jesus presses in further and says, yeah, I know you've been divorced five times and that you're currently in an immoral relationship. What is Jesus doing as he's unlayering this truth of her? Is this just a messianic flex to show off what the son of God can do? No, Jesus is pressing in to show her that he knows her, he knows all of her shame, he knows all of her secrets, and he accepts her. He even reveals his messianic identity to her. He unearths all of her secrets and then even lets her in on his. And she is so transformed by this encounter of loving acceptance that she goes back to her town and announces to everyone, come see the man who told me about everything I did. Which by the way, that's vulnerable to go back to your town and go, remember all the things I've done? This guy knows those too and he loved me. And this is how Jesus loved you the first time you met him, and it's still how he loves you right now. Benner again says this, every time I dare to meet God in the vulnerability of my sin and shame, this knowing is strengthened. 
Every time I fall back into self-improvement mode and try to bring God my best self, it's weakened. I only know divine, unconditional, radical, and reckless love for me when I dare to approach God just as I am. Again, Benner says, I'm convinced that God loves each and every one of us with depth, persistence, and intensity beyond imagination. God doesn't simply like you, nor does God simply have warm sentimental feelings towards you because you were created in the divine image. No, the truth is that God loves you with a passionate, absorbed interest. God cannot help seeing you through the eyes of love. Even more remarkable, God's love for you has nothing to do with your behavior. Neither your faithfulness nor your unfaithfulness alters divine love in the slightest degree. Like the father's love in the parable of the prodigal son, divine love is absolutely unconditional, unlimited, and unimaginably extravagant. And friends, what the Holy Spirit does is takes this love from the Father and presses it into your heart. And I wonder if today, even now, God is doing that for some of us again. In the mercy of God over and over and over again. And this is why we lean into the disciplines of reading scripture and worship and gathering together and spiritual friendship and all of these things. Sabbath and silence and solitude. We do all of these things because they're a vehicle to encounter God and his love. That's what it's all about. I'm going to wrap here, but a few years ago, we were in worship uh, at First Baptist Church in the evening, and we're worshiping, and I love worshiping with you guys. It's the best. We're worshiping, and I'm just like, God, show me your love, or something to that effect. And I had this image come to mind, and it was me as a baby Kind of weird when you're like a middle-aged man. But it was me as a baby being held in the arms of Jesus. And Jesus was looking down at me. And it's so weird because as a middle-aged man, I have spent the past several decades trying to be a responsible man, leading my family, leading church, having a mortgage and yard work and all of that. And so I have not thought of myself as a baby for quite some time. But it was this beautiful reversal that surprised me. And in that moment, I just imagined God's love, the Father's love over me. I needed to be reminded that not only am I a father, but I'm a son. I belong to Abba, my father. You know, Psalm 131 says, I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Now, moms, happy Mother's Day. You know that feeling of when your infant is nursed and full and finally relaxed. They've been squirming and pooping and you know, all, crying and all of that and then finally there's this moment of calm. It's really what you've been trying to get to probably all day long with your infant. Finally relaxed in your arms and you get a treasure that moment. And this, friends, is the posture we have in the arms of God. He is longing and waiting for that moment with you. So will you come and rest and cease striving and be held by your Father?